Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. Coming up on today's episode, we're going to take a look at some headlines from some interesting stories that are out there. Also, see what's on thetrumpet.com and preview the Trumpet Daily Radio Show. And in the second part of today's program, take a look at uh, Herbert W. Armstrong. Maybe you know some about him, maybe not, but we're going to give you some uh, really good information about him and uh, as this is the anniversary of his death. We'll look at that and more on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcgfm. And any emails you'd like to send, send those along to comments at kpcg.fm. I'm Dwight Falk, Grant Urgent here today as well. Uh, cold day today. Today's the coldest day of the week for us here. We've had this, uh, it's interesting, if you look at the weeks and the temperatures, it's like this roller coaster where it's been dipping in the middle of the week. And then, like, I think on Sunday it's supposed to be in the mid-60s again. And today for a low it was 8 degrees, 6 degrees maybe. So we're really jumping all over the place. I'm not sure what that's doing for people's health. Flu season's pretty pretty extreme this year. We've got a story about that coming up in a bit. But I think maybe sometimes that weather has something to do with it. It probably does. I've heard of some people who have come down with something and just haven't been able to really get totally over it in a few weeks just because of I guess the changing temperatures or maybe just how severely cold it has gotten at times too. Yeah it's been been pretty chilly for us here we're not always used to those extreme cold temperatures but uh, anyway it's kind of interesting and uh, uh, affecting different parts of the U.S. too uh, and, th- and they're still having uh, well they're still cleaning up from that those mudslides in California I saw uh, on the report yesterday where they're I think the 101 is still closed partially and uh, they, they're still finding some people. Um, and so I think the death toll's over 20 now. So they've had quite a few uh, just calamities there as well. And, uh, and so it's easy to forget about it because, you know, we move on with the headlines and things, but they're still dealing with some of the fallout. And then there's more rain coming, so there's more concerns about mud, more mudslides. That's almost unheard of to see a, a highway that has been closed probably for about a week now or at least extremely delayed. Uh, usually, unless there's a long-term construction project, you don't see a natural disaster or a car wreck or anything slow down a highway for that long, at least in this country. Yeah, we're used to getting where we need to go, usually, unless there's a traffic jam. But So anyway, they're, they're still dealing with that. A couple interesting notes to start today. Um, Americans uh, are going to break a record this year uh, for meat eating, apparently. So if you like to eat meat, this is for you. <laughs> The average American is set to eat 222.2 pounds of red meat and poultry in 2018, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, surpassing a record set in 2004. Egg demand also will be at an all-time high. I don't know how they know that. that nobody asked me how much meat I'd be eating, but uh, anyway, they think we're going to eat a lot of meat, even though some of these uh, other diets are more popular where they don't like the meat, but somebody's <laughs> eating a lot of meat. That's astounding how they could pr- predict something like that. I don't know if they're... 
looking at years past and trying to project it based on those figures. But, I mean, it's pretty hard to say that uh, absolutely everyone's going to be eating about 222 pounds of meat. (laughs) All in one sitting. It's quite quite the day. Uh, Also, the uh, number of complaints that the Federal Trade Commission receives received in 2017 about robocalls, uh, over 4 million complaints. And that's about as many robocalls as I think I got in 2017. <laughs> they're they're tricky, too, because they make it seem like they're calling from your area code. And so you think, oh, I wonder who that is. But it, I, I imagine it's harder for them to get through with those telemarketers these days because most everybody's got all their contacts in their cell phone. So you look at it, and if I don't know, if it doesn't pop up as a contact, I'm usually a little leery to answer the phone. I've been getting calls like that a couple times a day for a few months now, just totally random numbers. I think it's usually a different number each time, but yeah, why why would I even waste my time answering? They don't even bother to leave a voicemail, so it can't be that important. Yeah, that's what I always think, too. If it's that serious, they'll leave a voicemail, and I'll just check it out later, but uh, they're always trying to figure out new ways to uh, get in contact with you. <laughs> they want to sell you something. Uh, we talked a little bit this week about uh, a report about the media, uh, the U.S. Some people were polled and determined, you know, if they think the media is reliable and so forth. The Newsweek has a little more information on this. And uh, they say news, the news is critical or very important to preserving democracy, according to 80% of the more than 19,000 American adults surveyed for a new Gallup Knight Foundation study, which was published today. Yet less than half said they could pick out a news source they believe is objective. So you can see the disparity there. What do you think the most trusted news source is as far as the major media? Fox. Yes, Fox News was uh, by far the most trusted, uh, far above the New York Times, CNN, and the BBC. Uh, 24% of Americans surveyed said they think they're the most objective. So that's not a high number, but it's a lot higher than the others. I would tend, tend to agree with that in general. I, I think they're a little more objective. Some of those other ones mentioned are so obviously not objective that you know, even if Fox isn't perfect, um, <laughs> they're they're doing a little better than the competition, I think. Well, all you have to do is is take the time to watch maybe a program on each network, and then you just just think about where each of these networks are drawing their stories from. If you go to MSNBC and you watch someone like Rachel Maddow, it's like an entire hour of speculation, like borderline extreme conspiracy theories. And then if you go over to somewhere like Sean Hannity's show on Fox News, he's presenting documents. He's providing statistics. Uh, There is a difference just in general of what is being presented. So you might think that um, both of those people have their certain agendas or their certain points of view. But if only one of them is presenting it with facts behind it, it's, it's a little easier to see why that person might or that entire network might have more credibility. Yeah, there. I mean, there's uh, something to be said for robust debate. They have debate clubs in high schools and colleges to where they may even assign you, like you come down on this side of this argument and you come down on the other side, but then the idea is that you're supposed to present factual information to try to back your side. It's not, they don't call it opinion club. <laughs> it's debate. and But the media, a lot of cases, turns into just opinion you know, at least in in some of these sources that are not as trusted as much. According to the Knight Foundation study, however, Americans say that regardless of accurate information being available, 
They feel the media environment is awash with so many competing stories, they are having trouble finding the truth. Some 58% say the multitude of information sources, including those online, make it harder than ever to find out what is accurate. And we touched on that a little bit yesterday. There's just so much information out there, people are getting sort of overwhelmed and having a hard time determining what's actually the truth of the matter. And so uh, it's a great time to really uh, uh, go to thetrumpet.com a fair bit and check it out, at least give it a look and and, and read the articles because uh, people are searching for truth and feeling like they're just being overwhelmed by all sorts of information, but a lot of it's not true. Very true. Uh, I guess very, very true. true what you're saying at least. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like yesterday, I I just went on Google and I searched MLK Day for Martin Luther King Day, which was yesterday. And in that little news window on the first page, the the only three stories that you see there um, were from left leaning sources, and all three of them were about how President Trump was golfing yesterday. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of stories that are frequently. Uh, spread around on a lot of these websites and people just after a while get tired of hearing about stuff like that that isn't news it's clearly an attempt to disparage the president Um, it's not really important they they're just drawing attention to things that they think are his faults Uh, but they're not they have nothing to do with policy they have nothing to do with the direction of the country it's just well they hit the president so they're going to share this negative piece yeah the negativity gets is pretty overwhelming, I think. So anyway, some interesting information there. Uh, Americans are very much interested in the news, but they want to find the truth. So uh, again, trumpet.com is a good place to go. Beyond that, good luck. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be yeah. tough. You really have to dig around. Well, think about that. I looked up MLK Day, mm. and the three things were about President Trump. I mean, I just at, at what point do we just start, you know, totally leaving all those sources and going somewhere like the trumpet.com you're not going to see uh, bogus garbage articles like that all over our website that would be an interesting study for somebody to just google random topics and see how many of them link back to the president and a lot of them do i tried yeah. that one time and it's just amazing I, I tried like 10 different random subjects and people literally will find a way these these writers find a way every time to relate uh, a hurricane or a mudslide or any sort of problem back to the president the the nuclear false alarm in hawaii it always relates back to the president how is that even possible it reminds me of those movies you see where somebody's kind of losing it and they they have the big board in their garage where they're making all the lines to try to make everything connect in their conspiracy and it it almost seems like that would be the map for some of these stories. Like, how can we connect this back to our main point here? And <laughs> you'd have to see all the lines. It's confusing. It's absolutely uh, stunning. There, there are a lot of compilation videos online of, uh, like, maybe a CNN reporter or someone asking a, a loaded question to one of their guests, and the guest gives them a totally different answer than what they were expecting. Obviously, they were expecting the guest to attack President Trump, and then. It doesn't go their way, so they're like, oh, okay, I understand. I understand. They're like trying to yeah. end, the, end the answer as fast as possible. They don't want to hear a single positive word about the president. It's so obvious that they're not even attempting to be objective and unbiased for a single second that uh, pretty it's pretty obvious for people who are watching that there's an agenda there. There's an, a clear all-out attack going on. Hmm. Yeah, people are seeing it and not trusting the media. So uh, interesting uh, report there. 
PJ Media has this. This is a great headline. What's the matter with California? That's a good question. We mentioned earlier mudslides, you know, the rain when they probably didn't need it as much, uh, the fires, all, all sorts of problems in California. This deals with a different issue. Guess which state they say. I think we already gave it away. <laughs> Guess which state has the highest poverty rate in the country? It's California. One out of five residents is uh, considered to be below the poverty line. That's according to the Census Bureau's supplemental poverty measure, which factors in the cost of housing, food, utilities, and clothing, and which includes non-cash government assistance as a form of income. Given robust job growth and the prosperity generated by several industries, it's worth asking why California has fallen behind, especially when the state's per capita GDP increased approximately twice as much as the U.S. average over the five years ending in 2016. So, well, I've got some ideas as to why they're having problems. Uh, I mean, look at the influx of individuals coming into that state uh, that are not citizens of the U.S. that are living below the 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 legal limits of what they should be doing, I guess, or trying to stay off the map uh, or the radar. Um, welfare state. I mean, there's a lot, lots of things going into that, but it's a good question to ask. I mean, what is the matter with California? Yeah, and you do hit on a really uh, central part of that issue, which is millions of illegals in the state that are taking away money, jobs, and other resources from people who should be getting them first. P- Americans should be receiving those benefits first, if anyone at all. Uh, and, and it also has um, the effect of keeping the Democrats in power for even longer. When we talked about, we've talked about before how California used to be a solidly Republican state three decades ago. Then all of a sudden you have this influx of illegal immigrants. Um, they don't have voter ID laws over there. Is it really so far-fetched to believe that some of these illegals might actually be voting illegally too? If they're willing to cross the border illegally, why wouldn't they also vote illegally to keep those in office who are handing it, who are giving them these ridiculous handouts? There's a lot of very good write-ups at thetrumpet.com about the state of California and some of what's going on there. In some ways, it's the most blessed of states, but then in other ways, it's the most cursed. And uh, this is a good example of it to where, as PJ Media points out, there some some sectors are booming. There's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of poverty, too. You know, why the why that uh, that situation there? So uh, but again, you have to look at some of the moral issues and some other things going on there, too. And it's not um, you, you can't live uh, in a way that breaks laws and then think you're going to have success. That's true. And I mean, there are other issues besides illegal immigration with a lot of uh, far eastern paganism that is taking root there, all kinds of drugs and and those being widely accepted. Drugs alter the mind, and so that that is going to um, change how a lot of people live their everyday lives. If your mind is constantly addled by drugs, how are you going to hold down a job? How are you going to start a family? How are you going to live a stable lifestyle and hold on to the money that you make without spending it all on drugs once again. Yeah, in the Trumpet Hour, I think it was a week in review last week, which you can find at thetrumpet.com, uh, Andrew Miller, I believe, was talking about some of the things happening in California because of the legalization of, of marijuana. And um, there, a lot of people are gearing up for, they know the crime is going to 
increase because of whenever you have drugs involved, there's always crime. So people are arming, people are getting their their dogs, you know, they're doing all the things to protect themselves. And the idea of, I guess, legalizing the drugs is that, well, it, it you know, now it'll be safe. We'll all do it above above the board and this will be great. But it doesn't go that way. It's uh, It does cause lots of problems, like you said. And if somebody's addicted to something or, or there's a chance to make a lot of money with it, uh, there's going to be legal activity involved. You know, what do you, what do you do if you're addicted to a drug, um, whether it be marijuana or something more severe? And you need it, and you want it, but you don't have the money for it. You're probably going to still go get it, and then it becomes illegal, uh, even according to the the laws of the land. Yeah, there's a factor of get going going after drugs in desperation and going as far as committing murder at times even to get drugs. But even just common sense should tell us that so it, any of us, if we are not in our right mind, are liable to do things that we would never do. I mean, anyone who drinks too much or gets on these types of drugs is not in the right frame of mind and that does make crime a whole lot more likely that's just a logical fact and anyone should be able to see that so california has some problems uh, including some poverty so you can look at the rest of that at uh, pj media and a lot of homeless too uh this is a reddit from bloomberg uh, about the flu season have you been affected by the flu grant is it is the scourge affected you? Not this year. Um, my wife and daughter have had it for a while, so it's just a difficult situation. It's been in the house. Yeah, we've yeah. had it. We've had it kind of in the house too, the kids a little bit, and um, so. Uh, and I, I think we've, I think we've kind of had it, and then <clears throat> I think we got over it. But then it seems like it's rearing its head again. Yeah. Bloomberg says, "Think flu season is bad. It might get even worse." They say this is the first year that we have had the entire continental U.S. be the same color on the graph as far as who has the flu. Ever since they've been keeping track of this, and I think it's been over two decades, it's never been this bad at this time. There's stories about, I think, out in California again, where um, they have to set up tents because there's too many people in the hospitals for it. There's a story about a uh, 40-year-old lady, fairly fit and everything, a mom of three kids. She got the flu and was dead two days later. That was a recent story. So... Uh, it is, of course, it always can kill people, but particularly the elderly. But it's it's getting some others as well. Uh, the the strains are changing. There are different strains of this flu now. They have different numbers associated with them. The uh, the shots that people are getting are not as effective. And um, they're actually one of the main components in those shots is eggs, which I didn't realize. They grow it in the egg. So <laughs> for whatever that's worth. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, the flu season is pretty rough. And uh, the more and more people, uh, you know, get some of these different shots, those become less effective. And I think even in some of the cases of fatalities, the people that had the immunization, immunization and it, it didn't do much, obviously, in those cases. So uh, I hope it comes to an end soon, but, but it looks like it might be a rough flu season. Yeah, someone was telling me recently they've never been uh, so sick as they have been this flu season so it is uh something that it is not it's not just another winter bug it seems like it is something that uh is affecting people in a way that they've never experienced before um i don't i don't really know why that is but it's obvious that people are getting it worse this year than they ever have yeah and it's it's interesting I, you know i know if you ha- if somebody has it really bad a lot of times they, they they will go to a hospital or something and and maybe that's uh you know their best bet in their case. But uh, it's always interesting when you herd a bunch of people together that are all sick. 
<laughs> then it seems like there's more sickness. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's it's a tough deal and it's it's spreading around. Related to that, this is from AFP. And this this might affect uh might affect you. Suppressing a sneeze can be dangerous, doctors warn. You ever had this where that sneeze is just going to come out and you try to suppress it in some way because you don't want it to be loud and distracting, I guess. <laughs> That's happened probably to everybody. They say stifling a sneeze can rupture your throat, burst an eardrum, or pop a blood vessel in your brain. Researchers warned Tuesday, many people, when they feel a sneeze coming on, block all the exits, essentially swallowing the <sighs> sneeze's explosive force. That I have not ever done, I don't no. think. I've tried to be quiet about it, but... I don't try to block like my nose. Some people hold their nose and their mouth, and their yeah, that's not a good idea. Usually, before you sneeze, you you kind of take a big breath, and I take the big breath and just hold it for a second. If I don't want to disturb someone, if my daughter's sleeping, I don't want to sneeze right next to her. I'll try to get to the other room real quick. Or if it's during a lecture and everyone's being quiet, you don't want to just explode right there right. either. But yeah, I've seen people <coughs> do that where. They they basically do sneeze, but it's with their nose and their mouths and their like even like their ears and eyes shut, and it looks really violent and painful. They they say just how dangerous the stifling a sneeze can be was illustrated recently, when a 34 year old man showed up at the emergency service of a hospital in in uh, England. He had a swollen neck and he was in extreme pain. The patient described a popping sensation in his neck after he tried to halt the sneeze by pinching the nose and holding his mouth closed. Uh, a CAT scan confirmed what they suspected. The force of the suppressed sneeze had ruptured and torn open the back of the throat. Oh. No. The man who could barely swallow or talk was admitted to the hospital where he was tube-fed and given uh, intravenous antibiotics until the swelling and pain subsided. He was discharged after a week. They say halting sneezing via blocking the nostrils and mouth is a dangerous maneuver and should be avoided. So uh, in rare cases, stifling a sneeze has led to a condition in which air gets trapped between the lungs and even rupture of a cerebral uh, aneurysm, uh, which, of course, would be a a ballooning blood vessel in the brain. So that would be pretty rare, but still, uh, sneeze it out. You got to get it out of there. I try to be quiet about it, but at the same time, I guess if you had to sneeze and you were careful about it and somebody didn't like it you'd say hey what do you want me to do rupture my throat over here <laughs> I, I gotta let this thing come out <laughs> yeah that just confirms what all these people look like when they do something like that it does look very painful like it could almost just tear up part of your system so that's that's actually something i've wondered about mm. for a while just because it doesn't look right when people do that let the sneeze come out if you have to uh, when we're driving, I, th- my standard joke, I don't know that I'll keep doing it because maybe it's run its course, but if my kids sneeze in the back seat, I always grab the back of my neck like they hit me with it. <laughs> they get, it gets them every time. They're like, did I sneeze on your head? And I'm like, nah, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> so it's probably run its course now. That they, but they thought it was funny for a while. <laughs> here's, a, here's an interesting thing. This is kind of a, just a, uh, something that I've noticed over the years, and there's an app for this now. Uh, maybe you've noticed if you've gone someplace and you've seen artwork, paintings and such, you'll see a painting and you think, that looks like me, or that looks like somebody I know. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've had that experience, but I've <laughs> done that before. <laughs> now they have an app for that. Uh, meet your match. Google app finds famous art that you look like. Hmm. 
So if you take a selfie and, and put it in this app, which, again, that's at your own risk, I guess, uh, it will find classical artwork that looks sort of like you to the best of its ability. What if it actually is you? <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> if you're walking through the museum and it's like a piece that was painted relatively recently, who knows if they just saw you in the park one day and painted you from afar. <laughs> well, there's only so many options for humans, right? You right. figure eventually somebody's going to... Somebody's going to get it close. Uh, there's a famous drawing of the Gettysburg Address, where there's a guy in the front row looks just like your dad. Well, there you go. I don't know if Look I've shown that. that to you. I saw that years ago. I'm like, no, you looks, just show me that. That's that funny. Just, yeah. <laughs> so uh, they say when it works, it works, but you might not be very flattered by the results. Women are often matched up with old style paintings featuring men with mustaches, <laughs> and many of the portraits in searches are just not especially lovely. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, and there's this app does other things too, where you can just look at classical artwork and kind of zoom in on the different paintings. And so if you're if you love art, this might be kind of a neat thing for you. Uh, but anyway, it's it's a it's an app that lets you uh, find out. It's the Google's the Google Arts and Culture app. So mm-hmm. the Google Arts and Culture app. You might be interested in it. You might want to see what famous pictures look like you. Uh, and if you're a lady, you might look like a man. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. But that that was their choice. If if they decided to go on there, that's that's the consequences. We warned you. Well, don't they don't they say that about some famous works? Like you know, the, uh, like a man would paint himself his face, and then he you know make it look like a woman sort of. But they <laughs> they needed something to go off of, so they kind of mixed and matched a little bit. Well, wasn't that how it used to be in in plays? Like hundreds of years ago, they just have all male actors but if there were any females in the play males would inevitably have to play those parts too <laughs> yeah that's true that, that wearing was, a full-length dress right and a wig yeah that was a, a different time i guess <laughs> uh here's a story uh one last uh, headline this, this is really uh an inspiring one i thought worth mentioning uh this is from euro news a wheelchair athlete honored for rock climbing if you were if you've ever tried to climb rocks or just climb at your your local uh they have those rock walls. Um, I tried one time and I, I didn't last long because I, I think the typical thing for a rookie to do is to try to just use your arms and those burn out immediately. You have to learn to balance yourself. <laughs> so I wasn't good at it, but some people are just phenomenal at climbing rocks. <clears throat> this one individual, he's a Chinese uh, athlete, uh, Lai Chi uh, Wei. He's the first Chinese athlete to be nominated for the world's best sporting award. Uh, he hopes his success will inspire both athletes with disabilities and Chinese people that there are no limits to pursuing your dreams. Now, he's a four, he was a four-time champion of Asian rock climbing and the world's first Chinese winner of the X Games Extreme Sports. He's 35 years old, and he had this great career ahead of him. Then he had an automobile accident. He was paralyzed from the hips down. So imagine that. Uh, he's, a, he's a world-class rock climber, very dangerous, but then he gets injured in a car accident, of all things. And he gets paralyzed. And so he uh, thought, well, I don't want to just do nothing. So he tried a, a range of wheelchair sports, including boxing, which that would be really interesting. Never, really? Boxing? Yeah. How would you do that? Anyway, <laughs> boxing, fencing, and table tennis, but nothing could replace his love for rock climbing. It took months for him to get used to the new limitations, and as he described, it was one of his lowest moments, falling from the top as Asia's best climber to becoming a wheelchair-bound uh, individual. But it was on the fifth anniversary of the accident on December 9th, 2016, that he decided to climb uh, One Lion Rock, a 495-meter-tall mountain and a symbol of Hong Kong's spirit, persistence, and resilience and unity. And uh, he did it with a wheelchair. 
He says, to me, climbing to the top was accomplishing a dream of mine, and also by climbing the mountain meant that I could show to my friends and supporters that I have overcome one of the lowest points in life. Even though I'm in a wheelchair, I can challenge other sports and still be able to do what I love most. He's a part-time motivational speaker now, was recently nominated for a, the Global Sporting Awards World's Best Sporting Moment and his cl- for his climb up Lion Rock. He hopes his story of rehabilitation will inspire others with disabilities and show that nothing should stand in the way of fulfilling dreams. So when you see the picture, he's pulling himself up and he's in the chair. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. People like that often develop just outstanding upper body strength because they don't have use of their legs. Um, they either have to spend a lot of time uh, rotating the wheels on their wheelchair to get anywhere or anytime they have to like get out of bed or get back into bed or get in the shower or anything like that, it's all the use of their arms so that, that, they, that they have to rely on. So in that, in that case, you could see why maybe he might have like some sort of advantage, at least with his upper body, but we could never imagine trying to use just half of our body to do something like that. Yeah, really phenomenal and and good for him for um, continuing to be active. You know, life didn't end, even though it it really changed things for him. Uh, but yeah, I'm really stunned that they have wheelchair boxing. Yeah, how would I, I imagine there's more to it than meets the eye? Not that boxing is a good thing in any any way because <laughs> it just hurts people. But um, I've I've seen wheelchair basketball. It's pretty intense, and and you got to be careful. Uh, you'd have to know what you're doing. It's not. It's not, uh, there's a lot more to it than just shooting the basket, you know, as far as the way they move and everything. So I, I don't know how they would do boxing. I was just thinking about because we're sitting down across from each other. I'm like, well, if we just sat here and punched at each other, I don't know how that would work. Well, the worst part, it seems like if you're sitting in a wheelchair doing that, if you get hit hard enough to get knocked back or knock out, knocked out, like, you basically the wheels just go out from underneath you and you fall straight back, which uh, seems like it would be worse somehow than if you were able-bodied on your feet i don't know if it would be but it seems like it would be worse yeah well a big part of that sport is moving you know uh ducking out of the way and getting away from your opponent and i just like i don't know i imagine they would maybe there'd be something to where you could kind of wheel yourself out of the way but <laughs> i just envision two people sitting you know facing each other and just hitting each other repeatedly <laughs> it's like rock and sock and robots yeah they, they, there's no movement they just they just wheel up right next to each other and just start slugging yeah so Anyway, I think he, he made the right decision going back to rock climbing there. <laughs> Probably. So, I don't know. you got to have the right mindset for uh, mountain climbing. I saw a really interesting, uh, I think it was 60 Minutes report a few years ago on some of these free climbers where they don't even bother to have any safety ropes or anything. They just scale, you know, uh, rocks. And uh, the, the reporter went around with this guy who, who was very good at it and uh, just seeing him just go up this, this uh, pretty high rock and just the idea that one wrong move and you're dead or severely injured, I, I, I don't think I could handle just the mental side of knowing that. But they, I guess they don't think about it, and they just scale on up, scale back down. Obviously, some of them have actually died before, so they have to have at least some sort of knowledge of that or it's in the back of their mind while they're trying to climb the mountain. It's That's hard to even watch, like on TV or if you happen to be able to see it in person. It's just... It's just terrifying. You don't even want to look at it just because of what might happen. Yeah, I wonder. I'm actually going to Google this real quick because <laughs> I just wonder something, and but I can find the answer because um, I was thinking, oh, yeah, climbing is officially approved for the 2020 Olympics. Oh. Because I was wondering, I thought, um, why don't they do it in the Olympics? But they're going to apparently in 2020. Speed climbing 
Olympics newest fastest sports. So there's a whole bunch about that. Climbing faces challenges for acceptance. 2020 Olympics. So wow, because that would be fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, I assuming they could do it within a short amount of period. You know, short period of time. Uh, I would love to watch that. I'd be it'd be scary. <laughs> it really would. That that just it just gives you tingles all over your body when you when you watch something like that. But you you looking that up just got me excited about the fact that there's the Olympics. I guess it's next month, and yeah. then you have the World Cup over the summer. That's going to be a good uh, few months coming up here in terms of international sporting events. What do you? Well, actually, North Korea. You know, they're hoping to get involved in some of this. Yeah. And, they just sent a bunch of their, they call them the North Korean beauties, I guess, like their <laughs> best-looking ladies. They, I think they sent them to South Korea to be sort of like a, a, a peace offering. <laughs> Not a peace offering. They're just going there to as like a um, uh, an ambassador, kind of. And uh, so, I don't know. We'll see how, we'll see how well, that works out. They better have uh, top-level security on those ladies or else they'll never come back. That's what the you're, com- you're, you're exposing them to the better Korea. That's what the commenter said. Like they're they're going to be gone as soon as they uh, <laughs> as soon as they uh, have a chance. So that ties in actually to uh, the Trumpet dot com today. The top story: North Korea balloon warriors and a world held captive. This is by Jeremiah Jacques, an inspiring story of a brave defector. And people people are always trying to get out of there. Uh, there's a lot of stories actually today about North Korea, including that Olympic one. And then um, there was uh, another lady that defected, I think, about 10 years ago, and she was in the military there, which they think North Korea is the fourth largest military in the world, but it's compulsory service. I think now, from what they said, women have to serve seven years, starting, I think, about the age of 17. Mm. And so she was describing what it was like to be in the military. And uh, it's not great, uh, obviously. As you can imagine, there's a lot of bad things that happen there, uh, a lot of assaults and things. And just just some really deplorable conditions that she described. But it was, just, it was funny though, in a way, because she described these deplorable conditions, and then said, "But I enjoyed my time in the military." I'm like, "Really? Huh. That's interesting." But uh, one thing she said was that they had no hot water, so it was always cold showers. But the the hoses that they would use, you'd have snakes and things come out of it because it was just water coming out of like a, a stream or something. Ooh. So you can imagine the fear of going to the sh- take a shower. That is, <laughs> that is just a total nightmare. I don't even. <laughs> hopefully, that's not something I think about every time I get in the shower from now on. <laughs> no, most of us have the the shower heads with the really small holes, so nothing's coming through there, <laughs> even if I wanted to. But anyway, really, really some uh, just deplorable conditions over there, and people trying to get out of North Korea. Yeah, I've heard. Um, even in South Korea, they have. A mandatory two-year service and i wonder if part of that's a reaction to the north and how big their army probably is if you have that many people who have to serve seven years a lot of those people's terms are going to be overlapping i mean that's probably the majority of the country sometimes who are all part of the military military yeah that's a, it's a huge military i don't know how effective it is i mean there's there's uh health issues uh you know the one that just escaped recently had that massive tapeworm from just uh well there's some ideas as to why that would be the case but not good situations Ugh. over there so anyway the trumpet.com today north korea balloon warriors and a world held captive that's uh an inspiring story of a brave defector also make sure you listen for the trumpet daily radio show with your host Stephen flurry uh, January the 16th today, which means, uh, for those that are familiar with Herbert W. Armstrong and his work over the years, very important, significant day. He died, uh, in 1986 on this day. Amazing. It's been a, been a while since that occurred. 
Uh, and he talks today, Mr. Stephen Fleury does, about raising the ruins, the fight for the teachings and legacy of Herbert W. Armstrong. He, Of course, uh, there was a court case involving uh, or over the writings of Mr. Armstrong, many of his writings, and that went on for uh, quite a few years. And uh, so he talked a lot about that history and, um, and how really the case uh, ultimately was resolved on January the 16th. There was a few things to work out after that, but for the most part, that's when it ended. That that uh, symbolism is incredible. It's been 32 years already since he died, which is absolutely incredible. But it does seem like just about every year something notable happens, either the day before, the day after, or right on the day. And it's it's usually something notable happening in a region that we're keeping an eye on for prophetic reasons, or in this case, the court case, which... Uh, if we hadn't won that, we wouldn't be able to offer, what is it, 18 of his writings? Yeah, uh, Mystery of the Ages most uh, notably, but also the United States and Britain in Prophecy, Incredible Human Potential, Missing Dimension and Sex, uh, the the Correspondence Course. It goes on and on. There's quite a list there, and it's all free at thetrumpet.com now. And, of course, it wasn't that long ago you couldn't even get it. It wasn't available anywhere, and so now it is available and it is free at thetrumpet.com. As well as the book Raising the Ruins, which uh, does chronicle this court battle and or the the destruction of the worldwide Church of God. They don't even exist today uh, under that name. <laughs> the, the people are still out there somewhere in different various groups, but that, that organization no longer exists. Uh, and so that's it's a really interesting book, especially if you know some of the history. But even if you don't, it, it will bring you up to speed on, on what happened to that organization. It's very rare to see a, a massive, growing organization just absolutely disintegrate and be destroyed in a matter of a few years. So you just don't see that very often. Well, yeah, they have none of the worldwide work anymore, but they have all the money. That's That's the thing that people are so upset about is that they shriveled up the entire work that changed the lives of millions of people, but then they just kept all the money for themselves. They didn't give it back. They didn't decide to return all these contributions to the people who had given their lives to that work. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my check. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get that one back yet. But uh, so it's uh, it's uh, quite an interesting story. Very interesting book. Very easy to read. Race in the ruins. Good sized book. But uh, just very gripping in terms of uh, what happened to that organization there. And, uh, of course, they had a college at one point, too, uh, Ambassador College, which no longer exists. A lot of people have graduated from that. There's a lot of, there are people in this area that uh, um, have graduated from Ambassador College that uh, are living their lives, doing, you know, whatever they're doing. But, uh, you know, you have a degree from an organization that folded up. That's not very encouraging <laughs> you know even though it, depending on when they went it was a great education but still uh again you just don't see things fold up like that especially when they're very successful yeah, what must that be like for people who graduated from there and then i guess that's just a past chapter in their life at this point if if the organization folds and then you're just like oh well i guess i'll just go off over here and do my own thing it is it is strange to think of how how those people consider that past history. Yeah, if they ever think much about it. But uh, anyway, for those who have some uh, knowledge of that, that Worldwide Church of God and that history, Raising the Ruins is great. And again, even if you don't, it's it's really a very interesting read. It's free. It's at thetrumpet.com and it's talked about today also on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show because it being January 16th, the anniversary of the death of Herbert W. Armstrong. So for the rest of today's program, we wanted to take a look at uh, really 
really great write-up. It's at uh, PCOG.org. Herbert W. Armstrong, an unofficial ambassador for world peace. If you go to that website, up at the top, there's a couple of main articles, and one of them is who Herbert W. Armstrong was. And so we're going to take a look at uh, some of uh, what he did uh, today. And as it says, he was a, a publisher, an educator, broadcaster, humanitarian, unofficial ambassador for world peace, and he was an acquaintance and friend of leaders from around the world. Some of the biggest leaders in the world uh, all knew him personally. And it's hard to even uh, find anyone who had that many titles and just who produced as much as he did, who had these 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 acquaintances or these f- even deep friendships with some of these really powerful world leaders. Uh, there was a case where in China, I think it was three or four top officials there at a banquet for him, uh, got up and gave speeches praising him back to back. Uh, that's just, you don't see that too often from a private citizen, uh, people treating him like that. And then, uh, him just impacting people all around the world. Even if you just ask someone on the street today, uh, if they've heard of him or they've at least probably heard of something that he did. Yeah. It's really, uh, quite remarkable what he was able to accomplish. And, um, for those few that would be detractors of what he did, uh, you, you you do feel like, well, why, why don't we compare resumes? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you see that, that sort of uh, measuring test in a lot of things in the world. If if one person is critical of another, you say, well, well, let's see, what did you produce, though? And, I mean, here, Mr. Armstrong, like you said, I mean, produced so many things. Um but then just the world leaders, he met world leaders personally in their offices and was considered a close friend of many of them. There's there's really, I don't know anybody that can really say that right now on this earth or might, maybe 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 another leader of the world or something. But as far as, like you say, a, a private citizen, that's a pretty rare. Yeah, that's right. Probably Probably nobody, unless they had an official government title, maybe they could go around and meet some number of leaders, but I don't even think it would be as much as Mr. Armstrong got around to. Uh, So it is truly unprecedented what he was able to accomplish in that title of unofficial ambassador for world peace. He went around the world talking about how nations were eventually going to find peace. And it wasn't, it wasn't discouraging. It was such an uplifting type of message. That's something that maybe these detractors could think about. Like, what about what he did wasn't encouraging, wasn't positive, wasn't beautiful, um, because you can't think of anything. He was born in uh, 1892, Herbert W. Armstrong, and he experienced the advent of the Industrial Age, the Transportation Age, and the Nuclear Age. So for people that lived through that time period as well, not many would be alive today anymore, but, but really the world changed in massive ways. Uh, the Space Age and the Information Age, he witnessed two world wars and revolutions in culture, economics, warfare, and society. So his lifespan really did see a lot change in the United States uh, and the world. Uh, he was called into God's service and away from a promising career in advertising, uh, quite against his will. He didn't set out to become a, a, a religious uh, a figure or a uh, somebody that would be you know, on television and radio in the way that he was. But uh, that's where it went. Mr. Armstrong endured years of poverty in the smallest of beginnings for what would become a gigantic worldwide work communicating God's message of warning and inspiring hope. And sometimes people get a little uh, maybe off balance there and they thought too much about the warning and not enough about the inspiring hope like you brought out. Because the Bible, again, this is the Bible's message, God's message he was bringing. There is a definite warning there about the results of sin. 
but then overwhelmingly there is an inspiring hope about what comes uh, after you know man does have some correction. And he focused a lot on the hope when he went to these other nations, like you say, when he went to China, when he went to Egypt, when he met with these leaders in uh, Israel. He was talking about the hope to come. He wasn't uh, focused so much on the fact that there is some correction coming. Now, that's important, too, but sometimes you hear people say, well, it's all correction, all doom and gloom. But no, it was mostly inspiring. Hope was attached to every bit of correction that he ever gave. If he ever talked about keeping the Sabbath better or or just even making making someone's appearance nicer, any any bit of correction or instruction or guidance that he gave it was founded in love, and of course, there was hope to it. it it's not just change because um, God is going to judge you and he doesn't like what you're doing right now. It's, it's just change so that you can have a chance to inherit eternal life. That's what the hope behind all of that was. So for people to uh, get caught up and, and tied down with the corrective aspect of it, well, did those people try to apply that correction and see their lives improve because even that would show that his message was hopeful. Yep. Lots of hope. Uh, he became a pioneer and then the world's leader in televangelism and one of the most prominent religious leaders of the 20th century, uh, watched, read and followed by millions worldwide. I mean, if you, uh, lived in the eighties and you flipped on your television on a Sunday morning, you had pretty high, uh, chance that you would turn on the world tomorrow broadcast. Usually there weren't too many channels <laughs> back in that day anyway, uh, not as many. And he was uh, on usually one of them at least. And so I remember seeing him on television, and many people do. Uh, even people that never maybe came along and, and joined the church or anything, lots of people do remember him from uh, the World Tomorrow program, the Plain Truth magazine. And as we mentioned before, he established Ambassador College in 1947 in Pasadena, later founded two more campuses in Big Sandy, Texas, and Bricketwood, England, Thousands of students were educated by this life-changing institution for higher learning. And, of course, they didn't focus so much on how to go out and make a lot of money. They focused on how to live. But as a benefit of learning to live the right way, sometimes you can make a lot of money, too. <laughs> they, they, they can help each other out. But the focus was on living the right way first and foremost. Yeah, and that's just such a unique way to look at education because if you talk about any big university or even just down to a community college today, what are the courses about? I mean, it's it, it really does get down to finding a career, finding a job that fits your aptitudes and then just making a living. It doesn't teach how to live, and maybe that's what we need. Do, doesn't uh, do, Don't the fruits of society show us that we need to know how to live before we decide um, what our careers are going to be? Um, a lot of these students who have no idea what their jobs are going to be yet are rioting on their campuses if a conservative speaker ever comes. I mean, obviously, you have to have some sort of a moral structure. There has to be some sort of a, a code for the way that you live your life. Otherwise, how do you have these undisciplined students in class and how can you teach them anything if, if they're all about getting stirred up emotionally and even getting to the point of rioting sometimes. And a lot of people leaving colleges with massive amounts of debt, which people didn't leave Ambassador College with. Uh, I suppose if they were really frivolous, they might have had a little bit, but for the most part, uh, they didn't. And Herbert Armstrong College, where we're broadcasting from today, it's the same policy where you don't leave with these massive debts. You're ready to go out and get on with life. 
And so that, that was the difference even there. Uh, in the latter part of his life, as we mentioned, Mr. Armstrong met with heads of state and other high officials from around the world in his personal audiences with kings, princes, presidents, prime ministers, emperors, mayors, justices, members of the legislature, and other leaders of government, society, and business. He became known as an ambassador without portfolio for world peace. There's lots of uh, even videos online of him and pictures and so forth meeting meeting these world leaders. And, you know, you, you don't get a chance to meet with those uh, world leaders unless uh, they consider you to be somebody uh, that brings something of value to them, a message or helping with a project. And he did a lot of those things, too. And you can't just walk in there and talk to those people. <laughs> and uh, and it's just show because of also just the fact that a lot of them had some fr- a really good friendship with uh, Mr. Armstrong, that they respected him. You know, you can meet somebody and then think, I don't want to meet that guy again. But that wasn't the case. They wanted to talk to him about a lot of very important things. And their love for Mr. Armstrong transcended their hatred for other people Mr. Armstrong met with. I mean, Mr. Armstrong was a friend of the Jews, but he was also a friend of a lot of these other Arab nations that had a blood feud with the Jews. And yet both of these sides love Mr. Armstrong. So in a way, he was almost able to serve as an intermediary between the two sides. I mean, there was the the World Peace Center that he was trying to uh, fund and help construct uh, there at the base of Mount Sinai between Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin of Israel. Uh, and of course, Sadat got assassinated because he stepped out and tried to uh, enact that vision of peace that Mr. Armstrong inspired him with. I mean, who has ever seen such an overture of peace in that region except for when Mr. Armstrong was involved? It's a fascinating history, and there's more about that in particular on thetrumpet.com. And if you look at it, they've been trying to have peace in the Middle East for years and years, decades, and the closest they ever got was when Mr. Armstrong was involved with that peace center. That's the closest they ever got, and then, like you say, an assassination ended that as sadly happens uh, in this world. Uh, But when Mr. Armstrong died in 1986, he left behind a church with 725 congregations in 57 countries. They had a weekly worldwide attendance of about 120,000 people and 1,200 ministers. And where are those people now? Another 210,000 people contributed to the work regularly, and the church received more than $160 million annually. That was more income than what was received by Jimmy Swaggart, Oral Roberts, Jim Baker, Jerry Falwell, Robert Schuller, all popular televangelists at the time. So you, I think a lot of people remember some of those names as well. And just as a comparison, I mean, Mr. Armstrong's work was bigger and his audience was bigger than even those men. And isn't um, Oral Roberts' university here in Oklahoma, isn't, is it like... It's either in Oklahoma City or Tulsa, I believe. Um, but yeah, just even just in our own backyard, there's another university with one of those evangelist names, and yet Mr. Armstrong's work just absolutely trumped all of those in terms of size and scope. Uh, the fruits were clear. Uh, he was he was definitely producing a message that got results that people wanted to hear that that truly did change people's lives. I mean, that's why. He had uh, so many people in the church and so many people contacting the church constantly. And a difference, too, is a lot of a lot of other uh, men at the time, televangelists, asked for money where he did not. You know, people volunteered their money. They, they could certainly do that, and it was— it was always appreciated, but it wasn't asked for. Mm-hmm. And and some of those other televangelists were on oh, almost 200 television uh, markets. Uh, the World Tomorrow at that time was viewed on 382 stations. 
and 36 radio outlets around the world. So it was major, almost double some of the uh, other major ones. Of course, the church's flagship magazine was The Plain Truth, which many people received over the years. It was published in seven languages and had a worldwide circulation of 8.4 million. And uh, that was bigger than uh, um, a lot of other circulations. Uh, added together with uh, the Plain Truth and the Good News magazine, which also went out, uh, they had a uh, they exceeded the circulations of Time and Newsweek combined. So, so Time and Newsweek are obviously even today are still pretty big, not as big as they used to be. But uh, so it, it just gives you some perspective on how big the work was. So when we talk about the legacy of Herbert W. Armstrong, I mean it was a, a massive, massive operation. It really was. I mean, it's just it was to the point where either every head of household or every every household had someone who had heard of him or knew someone who had heard of him. It was like uh, the six degrees of Mr. Armstrong where just everyone could connect to Mr. Armstrong in some sort of a way or knew someone who uh, was involved with him. And there was obviously that element of like people passing it on by word of mouth. Like, did you hear what was on that Sunday morning broadcast or passing along the magazine that they were getting in the mail? Uh, there was just a genuine excitement from what I understand back at that time. And uh, probably summed up best Mr. Armstrong's uh, life and impact uh, by United States President Ronald Reagan when uh, after Mr. Armstrong died, he um, he sent a message to the church members and said, Mr. Armstrong contributed to sharing the word of the Lord with his community and with people throughout the nation. You can take pride in his legacy. So that was President uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, who's very respected um, as well. And he had a respect for what Mr. Armstrong did and, and uh, the work that he did. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a small thing. <laughs> it was a major, massive operation. His uh, last book that he wrote, and as he said, one of the most important was Mystery of the Ages. And uh, you can find that book for free at thetrumpet.com, which, again, you really couldn't find shortly after he died. I think it was out of circulation about three years later, mm -hmm. 1989 or so. And you couldn't find it unless you had one. You go to a used bookstore or something. Now it's free. You can find it at thetrumpet.com and also uh, Raising the Ruins as well, which tells the whole story of Mr. Armstrong's work uh, and then how it was destroyed. And also, uh, if you really have a great appetite for reading uh, Mr. Armstrong's uh, autobiography, you can get all of those. It's a nice package. And read about his upbringing, where the, where, uh, how the work began, what he began to do, how he did it and uh, how he was called and so forth. And then, of course, um, Raising the Ruins there shows what happened to it all. So there's a lot of great information at thetrumpet.com. And the true inspiration from his autobiography is not about what a man did, but just what God can do through a man who is totally committed to him. I mean, that that was the source of the power in Mr. Armstrong's work. It wasn't. It's not about glorifying a human being, but just look at what, God can do through someone like that and that is obviously a lesson that anyone can apply it's it's free to all of us to to learn it and to try to apply it in our own lives if we just will obey it just gets down to that and look what God can do yeah and you think that um curiosity would kind of get the better of people too I mean here we have this book mystery of the ages which is free there at the trumpet.com it, it explains the bible but there there are people that desperately didn't want anybody to read it so just being a curious individual, you think most people would say, well, I want to take a look at that for myself. Like, what, what's, <laughs> what's the big drama here? Why can't I read this? Uh, but you can now. So it's worth checking out, even from that perspective. Yeah, throughout history, anytime there's been uh, a document that people are trying to uh, bury, 
it's usually pretty important, and that just shows you uh, how important Mystery of the Ages is, how it does open up long hidden mysteries, secrets of the Bible that you will not find explained in traditional Christianity. Take some time to look at those things today. If you get a chance, you can order those books for free at thetrumpet.com and look at this article, pcog.org, Herbert W. Armstrong, an unofficial ambassador for world peace. And there's quite a few more write-ups about him uh, there at pcog.org and at thetrumpet.com. And of course, some of his own writings there at the trumpet as well. So uh, really uh, interesting to look at on this day, January the 16th, 2018. How many years did you say? 32? 32. 32. Uh, so that's... Uh, uh, once a generation or so <laughs> since he died. It's pretty yeah. amazing how how time does fly by, but make sure you stop and check that stuff out today. It's really uh, good information, good to remember uh, Mr. Armstrong and uh, the amazing work that was done through him on this day. And as you, uh, as you pointed out, again, the focus isn't so much about an individual, but it's about the work that was done through him. Yeah, and, and the work, I mean, it speaks for itself. We, we just talked about it for 20 minutes, but we could have spoken about it all day just because it is so staggering. Yeah, amazing. So check it out today, and also make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show, which gets into a lot of that uh, also. That's all the time we have for today on Trumpet Radio Live. Key David program is coming up, also talking about uh, Mystery of the Ages. So make sure you listen for that and that Trumpet Daily Radio Show on the way as well. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Falk, have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you tomorrow. listening to Trumpet Radio 101.3 KPCG